at least one possibility for what can emerge is a deeper wrestling with questions around not just what we do, but why we do what we do and how we do that. And one of the areas of inquiry I'm most interested in is around what is the purpose of work today? What is the purpose of work in a society that theoretically is so abundant in resources, which we're now seeing, right, how quickly we can actually do so many of the things we said we couldn't do before. So we can repurpose a hotel as a homeless shelter in a matter of days. We can send out stimulus checks to people as opposed to living in a constant state of income instability where 70% of people live paycheck to paycheck. We can create a a very quick and dirty version of a universal basic income, right? Like there are so many things that we can proactively do that we haven't done. And so I think there's this call for an elevation in ourselves and what is possible that occurs and that becomes a kind of more embodied experience that can rewire our own orientation toward abundance versus scarcity. Nita Baum is an entrepreneur, co-creator, facilitator, mentor, coach, and community builder. She's also board lead for Solar Responders, the NGO from previous guest, Hunter Johansson. So thanks to Hunter for making this happen. Born in New York to an inspiring cancer scientist mother and philosophical pharmacist father, her parents influenced her curiosity, appreciation for creation and her right brain, left brain development. In part two, we discuss her perspectives on the broader impact of COVID-19 and what led Nita to form her business, Be Free, that partners with organisations to help them activate individual, team and organisational potential. Nita questions the purpose and role of work in light of the crisis and our growing realisation of what can be achieved so easily and so quickly. We discuss the transformative movement of now and how people are reacting and the opportunity for consciousness raising, the reorientation of human capital and the transformative capacity in all of us. I hope you're inspired by the vision, values and life philosophy of Nita Baum. I mean, I want to talk about your your organization and I also want to talk about obviously we're, we're, we can't ignore the, the, the context um, of now and mm-hmm. COVID-19 mm-hmm. perhaps now is a good point to build on what you just said mm-hmm. because we've been talking I mean for the last few years in any industry you're in people are talking about the importance of purpose and meaning mm-hmm. but I think it's been taken up quite a few degrees as a result of a re-examination of our values and our, our purpose mm. and the meaning of life, particularly in the work that we do, it's, it's going to become, if it hasn't been crucial in the past, over the past few years, this, this tide of change, I think there's going to be an acceleration, almost a tsunami hit when people get back to work and can see the futility of the, of some of the work that has been done and how, what we value and what, the people we value, the roles we value versus the work, the, the roles that have real significance in, in mm-hmm. the world. Mm-hmm. So th- that this shift that's happening, I'd love you just to reflect on the fact you've been at the forefront of trying to lead this, this cultural change mm. and what you think might be uh, about to emerge. Yeah. And then, and then you could maybe just tell us about, um, then we can get into Be Free, your organization. Sure. Yeah, well, 
I mean, <laughs> I'll just, I'll start with, you know, a great sense of humility and respect I have for the unknown. I think we are oriented individually and collectively and we're wired like neurophysiologically, which is some of the, the some of what we draw on in our work at Be Free. But, you know, we're wired for survival and there are ways in which our wiring for survival kind of correlates to our orientation to want to know things in order to create a sense of safety and certainty for us. Like we're always looking to create a ground somewhere. And I think that is to our benefit because it does support our survival. And I think it's, you know, if overdone and not also sort of, (laughs) if that doesn't make space for uh, the unknown and the humility that comes with what we don't know and with cultivating very intentionally our capacity for living with the uncertainty and the impermanence that are the conditions of our existence, it can be to our detriment. So that's a long sort of preamble to (laughs) my sense of what's emerging. But what I can say, you know, firsthand experience, and I can speak to like my own current, both perspective and firsthand experience at the moment, I feel that at least one possibility for what can emerge is a deeper wrestling with questions around not just what we do, but why we do what we do and how we do that. And, you know, one of the areas of inquiry I'm most interested in because it's so important and relevant to the way we spend our time in the United States specifically is around what is the purpose of work today? You know, and I think this moment we're in collectively really has us reflecting on that. Like, what is the purpose of work in a society that theoretically is so abundant in resources and which we're now seeing, right, how quickly we can actually do so many of the things we said we couldn't do before, right? So we can repurpose a hotel as a homeless shelter in a matter of days, right? Like we can send out stimulus checks to people as opposed to living in a constant state of income instability where 70% of people live paycheck to paycheck. We can create a a very quick and dirty version of a universal basic income, right? Like there are so many things that we can proactively uh, do that we haven't done. And so part of what I hope, it, and, and I almost kind of think about it in terms of like high performance athletes or the Olympics. Like I had this special relationship to the Olympics when I was a kid, which was basically like, wow, like, you know, Mitch Gaylord can do all this incredible stuff as a gymnast in 1984, you know, I think he won the gold medal for gymnastics. It's like, he can, he can do this amazing stuff with his body. He can twirl on these rings and he can, you know, and it's, I think there's this call for an elevation in ourselves and what is possible that occurs and that becomes a kind of more embodied experience that we can that can rewire our own orientation toward abundance versus scarcity in moments when we actually see evidence of that manifest in people and in experiences around us right and so like olympians show us what is possible like is that superhuman or is 
what we consider superhuman actually an awakening to and an unleashing of more of our potential and faculties and capacities that lie within us, but they lie nascent within us until something calls them forth. And so on the sort of plus side of of what I see emerging, I think there is the possibility and the opportunity for an expression of a much more potentiated and elevated version of ourselves that is cognizant of our interdependence and that does foreground our well-being. You know, well-being has come is is now an issue we feel so viscerally, personally, palpably irrespective of where we sit in the power spectrum or how much wealth we do or don't have. It's like coronavirus is is equal opportunity unfortunately for us, right? Like and I think its potential is transformative. I mean, I think we're going through a transformative moment, which is to say it's irrevocable. Like we don't roll back our this experience, right? Like but we still have a choice as to how we respond. And I think in the in my work with leaders of organizations, some of what I'm seeing is, you know, people are processing their fears, they're encountering them in really significant ways. And I think there are people who are choosing to, in the urgency of this moment, kind of accelerate their own personal development and evolution, which is to say sort of pushing beyond their usual limits and their own edges in order to meet and kind of do justice to the possibility of this moment. Like, has it been more urgent or apparent (laughs) than it is now, right? Like what we, both what we can do and what we can choose to do based on what our values are. I think, you know, there's a lot of emerging possibility for a consciousness raising uh, in this moment. Yeah, so clearly it's this reframing that's happening at the moment. It opens up, and I'm just going to quote from your business, from your site, that your business that you formed, uh, I think around 2013, called Be Free, with a vision to recreate the workspace as a healing space where well-being, freedom, and prosperity for all people happens at, through, and because of work, not in spite of it. Now, that's a, that's a grand vision that might have seemed a little bit out of sorts with the way the world was in 2013, but I think it has a, a greater meaning and urgency and purpose in, in light of what's happening at the moment. What was it that led you at that point to craft that vision and, and set up your, your own consulting business? And how uh, open were businesses to embrace your vision and your methodologies? Mm. So, yeah, so we, we began in 2013 as a response to the estimates back then, which said that over half the U.S. labor force was slated to be freelance or self-employed by, back then the estimate was 2020. Um, more recently, it was 2027. And in this moment, uh, it's hard to say, <laughs> yeah. but that, and that wasn't just, you know, an American trend that was global. It was true for Britain and Australia and Africa. And so, you know, that statistic was really striking. So I'm the founder, I had um, multiple co-creators. We were all freelancers or had had the experience of being freelancers at some point. And so we were part of that 
movement and that sort of wave. And also we're encountering many people who are who are seeking support as they were leaving the workforce or they had been laid off or were considering leaving the workforce. And through our kind of inquiry and practice, practice being coaching and, and dialogue and research with many of those people, including ourselves, you know, we, we were in this inquiry about why people were leaving and what they were seeking. And it seemed really significant. And I would, I'll say like, you know, one of the reasons in particular we focused on that population wasn't just because we were them, but, but because we had been them recognizing the enormous transformative potential there is when you, in leaving the workforce, there's this kind of de-identification with the matrix. (laughs) And then there are these big questions around your identity that arise. Like when people ask you what you do or who you are, the question, it's no longer, I went to Columbia or I worked at the department of ed or I worked for this consulting firm. It's like a question you've actually got to sit with and interrogate. And it opens up a lot of possibility and the kind of possibility that seems not just like small incremental change, but, but transformation. And so we learned a lot from those conversations with people and what we learned ultimately informed the the sort of first launch of a program that we did that was called the Be Free Core. And essentially there were kind of five values which that undergirded the core. And it was a five-week program designed around those values or philosophies. The philosophies are really presumptions and they are, we come free, uh, we come uh, gifted, we come equal, we come in power, and we come grounded. And our notion was that what people were, one of the reasons people were leaving the workforce was because they didn't feel that the conditions of the workforce evoked those senses in themselves or responded to those needs and in fact detracted uh, from them. And they represent a number of things, but you know, if I were to pithily summarize kind of what we learned, people want to be seen, heard, expressed, valued as creative uh, beings, not just consumers of work, but producers and creators of it, and irrespective of what they're doing. And in conditions that value their well-being and add, add to their well-being, not detract from it. So the notion that, you know, like the term human resources has always struck me, like are humans resources to be consumed? You know, much like is the planet a resource to be consumed or are is the reason we work to actually add to the well-being of both of those things and in honoring and supporting the well-being and sustainability of both of those things feels to me like it's it's the latter so that became that was sort of the first iteration and that was working with people who had left the world of work based on what we learned and then also taking that knowledge and turning it around to support people inside of organizations inside of the construct to really wrestle with how to evolve uh, the ways that they work to reflect, you know, and in some cases support retaining people, definitely support their productivity and well-being while they were there. Although sometimes when we work with people, they choose to leave because they do go through this own their own yeah. uh, awakening, which we're okay with because we're ultimately about individual and collective well-being and sustainability, irrespective of the construct that you're in, whether you're a founder, a freelancer, or an organization. We've spent a lot of time over the last few weeks, uh, we've got three clients that are psychotherapists and mm. obviously they're spending a lot of time examining 
not only doing immediate sharing of resources and help and support to people who are maybe clients or, or patients, but also looking forward in terms yeah. of what this emerging time will bring. And, you know, we had a conversation with one of them a couple of days ago just about how the smarter organizations will mm. witness this period and recognize the value of their human capital, not resources. Mm. The people that are just the same way as any other form of capital is, is about adding value to the business and will potentially reorientate the way that they they treat them and bring and to nurture and to cultivate a better, let's say, not just environmental health, but physical and mental health of these individuals that contribute, as you say, not just as productivity, but as creative resources. Mm -hmm. And to the smart companies will be the ones that really accelerate that reorientation and look at the mental capacity and the underutilized mental capacity if it's human capital. Yeah. And I, I, so I think you've been at the sort of, let's say, as a, the nose cone of change, uh, <laughs> the retinue driving change that, that I think we might see an acceleration uh, coming out of this. But I don't know if that's, if you're as optimistic <laughs> as I yeah. am. Yeah. I mean, again, I, I think it's pretty unknown how we'll choose to respond to this, but I do think that there will be, and there already is a consciousness of the impact of uh, our physical and you know mental well-being on our capacity to be productive. And uh, you know, one of the things I'm seeing particularly with leaders, we talk a lot about the nervous system. And so, in my check-ins with leaders of organizations, you know, CEOs who are making, especially in the earlier days of COVID nineteen, like, you know how are you making decisions and where are you like what is the state of your own well-being you know and it's been really interesting to have we teach our leaders and teams about the nervous system we equip them with a greater awareness of where they are coming from like are you in a state of fight flight or freeze <laughs> and how does how does that impact your ability to make decisions to communicate and to relate to one another Right. That's that's exactly the conversation we recorded on Sunday with uh, Courtney Redicke, psycho psychotherapist. Yeah. Exactly that, going through the polyvagal sort of theory of nervous system. Yeah. Yeah, polyvagal is exactly what we draw on in our work as well. And hmm. you know, to me, education and the sort of workplace well-being—they're very interconnected. It's like I think one of the reasons we struggle to accelerate our own evolution in service of the things we actually need and want is because we don't study ourselves. <laughs> there, there, where in your life do you learn, you know, how to, do you learn about the nervous system unless you're yeah. studying neuroscience? And yet that is a fundamental part of how we experience, navigate, and make sense of the world, right? It's so deep and profound. Where do you learn about nutrition? Where do you mm -hmm. learn about you know, all of the factors that impact your mental, physical, and holistic well-being? Right. And like we use the term uh, spiritual in the sense of we kind of think of it as like the creative life force. What is the animating? Both, both of my parents passed away. I was, I was their primary caregiver during their, their death and dying phases. And, um, you know, I often think about like what they looked like, what they, what I, my experience of them before and after the moments of their, of their passing. Mm -hmm. And 
it's really clear when you've had that firsthand experience with someone that there is some intangible animating life force that we don't know how to capture. We don't measure it. We don't see it. And in many ways, we don't value it, right? And that's, this is not a religious sort of notion. It's just a, this is, there's something <laughs> that keeps us alive and, and drives us to do what we do. And some of our work is about also orienting to that creative capacity in us and being in the inquiry of what it is so that we can more wholly unleash, unleash our own potential. Like we can't unleash our potential because we don't actually know how much of it we have. <laughs> right? We're not tuned into that. Um, so it's taking uh, going back again to your Olympic um, athletes, totally who are, who are at the edges of potential and yeah. there to inspire us. Yeah, yeah, and tra- you know, I think this is a period that demands that we get in touch with more of our own potential and one another's. And I think there's enormous transformative capacity that lies inside of that. And I can say personally, you know, just having navigated crises and death and, you know, significant losses in my own life, my, my awareness of my breath, of my body, of my mindset were among the most powerful tools I had to navigate those experiences with presence and with greater access to my own capacity to make decisions in service of, you know, my parents, the people I was in relationship with, as well as myself. Okay, well, let, let's move beyond just then reframe this, not just in the terms of COVID-19. Yeah. I, I, making the assumption there will be some evolution to the way that we, people are um, valued in, in organizations and in society. Yeah. We're entering a period, we're in a period where the role of humanity in the workplace is being threatened by AI. Mm. We are existentially threatened by the climate crisis, albeit, mm. <laughs> if not paused, reversed to a degree through this great pause that we're living through. So um, amazing. So hopefully mm-hmm. it will be, um, have a, an, an enduring effect, but we're also still languishing somewhere behind in terms of when you talk about interdependence, mm. the power of diversity and the inclusivity of uh, everyone in uh, society to have a voice, to have a purpose, to flex their creativity. Mm. What do you see as the, I suppose, in just reflect on those three inter, independent yet interconnected not trends, but moments that are, are that are affecting what you do and society at large. Yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe you know, from a kind of, I, I think of potential at multiple levels. So there's the potential of the self. There's the potential of the team. There is the potential of some organizing structure. You know, that organizes us into something at a bigger scale. And I think in the same way that, you know, and then there's the collective at large and the systems at large. And I think that in the same way where there is a loss to the individual and to the collective, when an individual is not in touch with their own potential, there is one to the larger collective when we're not in touch with our, with the potential that lies across all of us. And that is my argument for inclusivity. (laughs) It's like, if you think of, you know, there are 7 billion people on the planet, you know, each holds a different 
perspective and has a different possible contribution. When we stratify who we value based on very arbitrary ideas and, and notions and potentially measures, right? We actually, we don't unleash the possibility of collective knowing that could arise from activating the potential of all of those 7 billion people or 7.7, right? It's like, and I think, you know, in addition to that, one of the things where we feel we need to heal collectively is separation. We see it in politics, the political polarities that don't enable us to transcend the dichotomized thinking we have that holds us back from actually coming up with collective solutions that would be more supportive of more of us. That's an example of how we won't solve exclusivity with exclusivity. Like you can't use the same tool to, <laughs> to address the issue as, as the one you use to create it. And, and on the climate front, I think the other thing I'll say is the climate, I just, I want to point out that the climate front is a lot like the Olympics, right? Like we have demonstrated again, uh, and I've said in rooms, you know, I, as board president of Solar Responders, which is a nonprofit disaster really resiliency and climate change uh, organization doing work with solar energy. You know, I've sat in rooms with some of the foremost climate scientists in the country who, who wondered, <laughs> even with their own estimates, whether they were right that we could in any way reverse the impacts of climate change. And we're seeing in a matter of, you know, a couple of months, what is possible should we massively change our behavior? I got invited to um, some drinks where I met uh, two of our recent guests, uh, mm. Jim Clark, who's been on, and uh, Maria Dantos, who will be on probably in a couple of weeks. And mm. it was at Nuriel Rohini, yeah, the economist. And we were talking, it might even be late January, and I said, you know, this, this, this virus, I suspect this might be the thing that will stop flight, air flights, mm. and we'll, we'll see a, a reversal. This is there's something bigger at play here. Maybe this is just nature. Mm taking its course. But if we look at Malthusian theory mm. and we try and justify and say, oh, well, you can see where it emerged from, but maybe this is the, the matrix that we're all part of, the bigger matrix of flexing itself mm. and saying change has to happen. If you can't control, humanity can't control the damage it's doing, nature will take control. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we'll see any rapid re return to vast air travel. I mm. think we will see a reduction in cars on the road. Now, maybe China is an evidence that the things are getting back to normal. Mm. But I'm a bit more optimistic that this is a this, this is us getting back on some form of track to proving that we can be more live more sustainable individual lives, collective and and national and international. So I'm I'm certainly welcome this period. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, I agree. And just one quick example yeah. or thought is I actually think that in order for us to fully awaken to what we can be, to kind of wake up and grow up to it, <laughs> we will need to process our grief and process uh, individually and collectively the, the loss and what has 
what no longer is, you know, the endings that have arisen as a function of this time. And sometimes I think about World War II and kind of post-World War II and the direction we took. Like that was such a particular moment in our individual and collective experience around being able to have this external, tangible manifestation of the capacities we have for violence, to inflict violence and essentially to create mass genocide, right? Like mm-hmm. we, we had tangible physical evidence of it now, undeniable and visible to us, right? And I think in the wake of World War II, the corporate structure, the inequities, the, the nature of the education system we created that was highly hierarchical, designed for control. I think one of the ways we expressed our unprocessed grief our unprocessing, our, our lack of processing of the the loss we had, was to institutionalize fear, literally by building institutions that were infused with the spirit of of our fear at what we're capable of, and our fear at what had transpired as a result of that. I think like we're in a moment where we have an opportunity to like process, and I think we should take the opportunity to process because I think it becomes really difficult to shift from fear to building from love unless you're actually in a cycle where you're acknowledging the endings and you're acknowledging the grief that comes with it. It's it's like you've got a clear space for what has accumulated to allow for something new to emerge. So I think if we have collective processes to do that, we can create some really new uh, and powerful ways of being aren't we i'm conscious of time because i know yeah. we oh, said yeah. three o'clock but yeah oh, just finally on this maybe we have to follow up with another shorter mm-hmm. interview to mm-hmm. talk about this because we like i think we yeah this is such a fascinating area <laughs> but we i think there will be more conversations around uh, the, what you're talking about but at the same time we could be driven the other direction because of the way that states will use this as an opportunity to even take more control, to create more hierarchical structures and control our privacy. But anyway, that's for separate. Yeah. We're going to do the quick four questions. What principles do you stand by? We, (laughs) I, I presume we all come free, gifted, equal in power and grounded. I presume abundantly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, what hard choices have you had to make that might have been tough at the time, but turned out to be the right decision? The decision to become a primary caregiver to both of my parents when they were passing, uh, there was tension between that and building Be Free, and they were occurring simultaneously, and I wouldn't trade that experience for anything. It was uh, humbling, it was a privilege, and I learned more in that period than I might have in the rest of my life. Wow. Make me think we shared in our newsletter recently the Tim Urban, mm. the post he wrote. I don't know if you've read it about I no. the last time, the time you have left with your parents once you leave home. Mm. Um, it's called The Tail End. It's really wonderful, Ooh. wonderful read. Yeah, cool. I'm check, check it out. out. Yeah. If you could return to one night, one day in history, uh, where, when, and to see who? Ooh, maybe civil rights. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe Rosa Parks, actually, like just yeah. uh, to be next to her on the bus. Yeah, yeah <laughs> we've had that. What's one problem worth solving? These are hard questions, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, being on the board of Solar Responders, you 
probably have to go with climate. I, I was going to say climate, <laughs> yeah, but it's it's um, it, it's something even simpler than that. Like yeah. the problem is that you know just how we show up with each other in our humanity. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> and climate change. <laughs> yeah. Where, where do you go to discover new ideas? Nature. What's the one question that no one asks you that you wish they would? What are you afraid of? The sad thing is we can't answer that. Answer, <laughs> ask you to answer it. We just have to ask it. Okay. That's right. <laughs> um, who's made you reevaluate yourself? Mm. Everyone. <laughs> it's a constant ongoing process um, that arises uh, in my relationships with people. Uh, we asked this impossible question, which is if you were, uh, what would your advice be to someone that's about to graduate um, to go to study? Might have a dream, a goal, a grand ambition, but it's been told that is impossible. Forget it. Mm. <laughs> I would say the process of our undoing is our becoming. So my advice would be... <laughs> The more you let go, the more possible everything becomes. That's, uh, yeah, that feels very Buddhist. <laughs> uh, it's lovely. Uh, bring it back to now. What's your go-to karaoke song? <laughs> I will survive. <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> um, best recent Netflix, Amazon or Apple or Disney or Hulu series? Um, so I don't really watch series and television, but I did watch... Uh, Documentary, movie? Um, Onward, a Pixar film called Onward. Oh, really? I've not seen that. Is it good? Yeah. Obviously. Must was, be. Right. Okay. That'll, awesome. go on, that'll go on the list. <laughs> what, what book would you like us to offer mm-hmm. the listeners that come up with the best comments in the comments section? Oh, When Things Fall Apart by Pema Chodron. Ah, not had that one before. Yeah. Who's the author? Pema Chodron. So she's a she's a Buddhist teacher, and uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful book. Okay. And final question: Who should we interview next? Oh, <laughs> that's a great question. Ah. I think yeah, <laughs> so good. Uh, <laughs> I might suggest Taylor Jacobson. He's the founder of Focus Me. He's also my boyfriend, full disclosure. But he's the CEO of a productivity software that pairs. It's a a remote working software Mm. before COVID. (laughs) Focus Me. Focus Mate. Mate, all right. Yeah, it pairs two people on like a 50-minute video session anywhere across the globe and the intent is to support people to do work, whatever work or productivity means to them. So you might be, you know, a parent uh, teaching your child something for 50 minutes or a student studying and you check in at the beginning, you check in at the end. And the intent is for people who struggle with being alone and remote, um, who struggle with their well-being and productivity to provide them with uh, support and accountability. How long has that been running? He founded it uh, a couple of years ago, and they first they they just monetized it like last fall. 
So yeah, it's been awesome. Very cool. And yeah. do the people do the people have to know each other or can it be Nope. No. Ah. It's really cool, clever. Oh. Okay. Well, we'll definitely be looking for the uh, Bettina to follow up with uh awesome. with Taylor. That's good. That's great. And <laughs> it's pretty easy it's over there. <laughs> and before before I round up and thank you. Yeah. You don't have anything about any obvious serendipitous thing. That's fine. We'll just leave it. When you said everything was serendipitous, oh, so that would be fine. Yeah, it it is. Um, I experienced so much, so much of it, uh, so much serendipity and so much synchronicity all the time. Like, I don't know, life feels like one big serendipitous synchronistic event to me ongoing. <laughs> well, well, let's let's just leave it. You don't need to say any more if that's the case. Yeah. So just to wrap up um, and thank you for your time, Nita. Yeah, thank you, Mark. And thank Hunter again. Yeah. I'd just like to acknowledge you for what comes across as being a deep advocacy for social justice, for your sister, for (laughs) pushing you to the edges of your fear, (laughs) which I loved, Um, for your healing mentality and to, to drive us to... Uh, experience the potential in all ourselves mm. and for driving organizations and for laying the groundwork over the last seven years mm. to what will take on an even greater urgency going forward because I'm sure you're going to be in high demand <laughs> um, to apply your methodologies and approaches mm. and yeah I think uh, the, for your creative life force so thank you very much and really enjoyed the conversation thank you so much likewise Mark thank you so much thank you Bettina thank you to you both it was wonderful to meet you yes if you like the show please subscribe and ideally give us a five star rating and a review because it helps more people find us just go to iTunes Spotify or your favourite podcast player to listen and subscribe this show is an Impossible Network production and is produced by Bettina McKaylee and Elaine Castillo-Keller. But for now, be curious, be creative, and seek out serendipity. See you next time.